0: It is great to be with all of you this morning. Uh, while I he- wasn't here last week, I'm so glad that Trent was in town then and was able to preach for you all then. It's like we're getting the band back together or something. Uh, but it's crazy. Like time happens really fast. Uh, it's been almost seven years since you all sent us out to plant Christchurch. It's we're two months away from when it was eleven years that my family moved here to. Albuquerque, my oldest, begins his first year of high school uh, next year, which is crazy. Uh, I'm turning 40. The youth kids that were in my youth ministry here are now leading you all. Uh, We're in a different room here, but many of the same faces singing the same songs, uh, proclaiming the same gospel, sitting under the same word of Christ. And so it's just great. I look forward to the day, well, I'm enjoying getting older. And seeing you all get older, as this church remains the same, but the people move through, get older, and just looking forward to like some of you high school kids or something being became, being the elders of this church when many of us are gone. But happy Mother's Day, everyone! A month or so ago, Ryan asked me if I would be able to preach today, and he told me that it didn't need to be a Mother's Day sermon per se, but maybe something close. I said, "How about Ruth one?" He said, great, and I said, that can be a great sermon about how you too can become a terrible mother-in-law. Just kidding, but uh, I wish that I could be with you for the next three weeks after today because just preaching the first chapter of this book of Ruth is just a travesty. Uh, I think most people are intuitively drawn to this book. This book of Ruth, and have been since its very writing, for one thing, it is seriously one of the greatest short stories that has ever been written. The characters are interesting, the dialogue is compelling, the drama and the conflict is palpable, the resolution is just sweet. But also, and I know, believe it or not, Ruth is actually a story about Jesus. Just like with Genesis or Exodus or Joshua or 1 Samuel, the entire Old Testament sets the stage. It sets the lighting, it sets the props and the sound just right for the main character then to walk onto the stage. If we merely focus on the main character, that's that's better than nothing, but we will absolutely better understand what he is doing and who he is if we understand the setting that he walks onto. You guys are going through Matthew right now. And you will know and understand and believe and trust Jesus more the more you understand and appreciate Ruth. But then also, to paraphrase one Ruth commentator, most of us live in the book of Ruth, not in the book of Exodus. That is, we do not gather miraculous manna from heaven every morning and then walk through parted seas. We rather live by faith in God's ordinary providence. Meaning we, like Ruth Likely don't see the astounding, the unmistakable miracles in our lives, but if we are careful, if we are observant, we can see the astounding and the miraculous provision of God in our lives. We need stories like Ruth to lift our gaze from the immediate good or bad circumstances in our lives. Or to put it another way, one question Ruth seeks to answer along with the rest of the Bible is this Is this life ultimately a comedy or a tragedy? Meaning, like in the classical sense, is this life, is the story of humanity, a story with a good and happy ending, or a dark and a tragic ending? For the characters living in this story, in the book of Ruth, oftentimes also for us, it is not altogether clear what the answer to that question is. Is this life, is existence a comedy or a tragedy? And so Ruth helps, us, helps to remind us that the story of God is actually a comedy, not, not a ha-ha comedy sometimes, but that good wins. God wins. Suffering, sadness, sin, and death dies. So that's enough intro. Let's get into this story. We're going to trace just chapter one today. Here trying to follow the, the contours of the actual like, narrative arc. So under three headings this morning, we're going to consider first a faithless departure, a faithful commitment, and then a desperate return. So let's read these first five verses together here. You have your Bibles. Let's be open here to Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Ruth, you may have just heard that and thought that got real dark real quick, and it does. Maybe you remember if you're remembering Ruth and Ruth, and you think about it and you remember all of the sentimental, sweet things that come later in the book, in the later chapters, but you may have forgotten the beginning. Maybe you've heard that this is a sweet story, and perhaps a sweet love story. One of the best love stories in the whole Bible, and then you open up this, and you're like, this gets really heavy, and it does. In verse 1, we read that this is in the time that the judges ruled. This isn't just a once upon a time, or there once was a man from Nantucket introduction or something. We're not sure when Ruth was written, likely either in the time of David or in the later times of Ezra and Nehemiah when the people had come back into the land out of exile from Babylon. But verse 1 is telling us it's not just once upon a time, but rather back in the time when was the absolute bottoming out, the moral of the moral history of all of Israel. Back in the time of the judges. In the time of the judges, if you read the book of Judges, it is really hard over and over and over again. We read in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is exactly what that book is about. It's about evil, about wickedness, about violence. In fact, if you flip back one page in your Bibles, you'll see that that is the very last verse of the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's the setting, the moral bottoming out of Israel. And not just that, but even the location of Ruth. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. The word Bethlehem itself means house of bread. Beth or bet means house and lechem means bread. The house of bread is where these people are living. So even though there is a famine in the land, the man, we find out, his name is Elimelech, he leaves the house of bread, the house of food, to find more food, and he leaves with his wife and his two sons. Now, ordinarily, who could blame him? The history of human migration is that of moving to find food, to find security, and to find a place where you are less worried that you will actually not live till tomorrow. But for these people, should they have moved? Should Elimelech have led his people out of the house of bread? Is it just the same as modern-day migrants moving from Ukraine to Poland or from Nicaragua to Texas? Now, it's not clear what's going on with this famine. It could be that, as in times of military struggle and war, like in the time of Judges, that famines are absolutely to be expected. It could be also, though, that God is using famine to rebuke his people, to bring them to a place of repentance. If you know the the cycle, the so-called cycle of the Judges, that of a time of disobedience in Israel's history, and then God brings about persecution and loss, Then, during that persecution, he provides a deliverer or a judge to provide deliverance from the persecution that then brings repentance in the people that then cycles back into disobedience and the whole thing goes and goes and goes. So maybe this famine is a time of loss that God might be trying to bring repentance in his people. More than that, though, while they are hungry, this is the land that God had delivered to his people. He had given them this place out of slavery in Egypt that they might enjoy God and that they might in these days enjoy his material blessings of peace, of prosperity and security. And so we might expect a faithful response from Elimelech to be, while he is experiencing loss and famine and insecurity in his life, to be preaching repentance to his countrymen. Even in the anxiety of hunger and loss and confusion, in trusting in the promises of God to bless his people, to love his people, to be present with his people wherever they find themselves to be. So, as Sinclair Ferguson says, instead of turning back to the Lord, this little family turned their backs on the Lord and they moved to Moab. And what makes this even more incomprehensible is that they moved to Moab of all places from Genesis on, Moab is a constant thorn in Israel's side, a thorn of violence, of oppression, of temptation. But off they go to Moab. in Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king, though his life seemingly doesn't believe that, and his wife Naomi and their two sons. But even though they absolutely should have stayed in the land, we could maybe even be a bit more understanding if they just left the land and went to Moab for like one harvest season. One growing season, one season to see what might happen, if God might provide more food next year or something. But at the end of verse 2, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. They set down roots. And then we read, and we don't know when, that Elimelech dies. Naomi is very quickly widowed. Terrible, sad, disorienting in any culture in any time, but especially in these times where men and husbands were the main place not only of income and day-to-day security, but also of the long-term security of a place of land and inheritance for a family. But all is not lost. Naomi has lost her husband, but she still has two sons who can carry on that role and responsibility in her life. Surely the three of them can now return to Bethlehem, find wives, and carry on their father's name. But verse 4, whoops, they take Moabite wives which is against the Mosaic law. Several places in Deuteronomy make clear that to marry outside of the people of God is to just invite and welcome idolatry. So now it's possible for, or it is possible for someone outside of ethnic Israel to become the people of God. Prominent Gentile women were brought into Israel, and they were commended for both their faith and for leaving behind their past idols. There's Zipporah, the wife of Moses. There's Rahab, the former prostitute in Jericho, among others. But the narrator here doesn't seem to give us, or he he is giving us like a bright uh, red flashing light here that this family doesn't much care about what God has said or has promised. They move whenever there's no food. They find wives wherever there is one to find. Whatever is easiest, whatever is convenient, whatever is present. In other words, what requires no faith. The path of least resistance seems to be the M.O. for this faithless family. But even still even if they are idolatrous Moabites, perhaps these ladies, they can be the one that can continue the line, of, the line of Elimelech. And this family can grow, even with no social security, no Medicaid, no social programs at all. Maybe all is not lost for this family, for Naomi, for she will have security. She will have a growing family. And these wives are named Orpah and Ruth. These the two boys, her two sons, marry these two Moabite women and another flashing red light at the end of verse 4. They lived there about 10 years. They have not returned to the land. And then with no explanation or reason given in verse 5, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now Naomi really has nothing. Again, for a woman in any time and in any culture, this would have been absolutely emotionally devastating. Her husband has died. One son dies, then her second son dies. Three funerals of her closest relationships. Perhaps her closest friendships in the entire world within a span of at least 10 years. Maybe in a time more compact than that. This is a familial nightmare of the highest order. Devastation and loss that most of us could only imagine. But again, on top of all of that, now Naomi is unbelievably vulnerable. She is facing the remaining years of her life, in which she is likely now probably somewhere in her 40s. She is facing the rest of her life of, in fear of hunger, of destitution. She is vulnerable and at a place of loss. But let's keep following the story. While well, it seems like all of these deaths and loss might be the moment of crisis, in a moment of climax of the story, it actually isn't. The, the narrator just sets up this entire thing, these first five verses, just, just, as just kind of like giving us the setting. It's actually not much, uh, a place of much tension in the story. All of this is just setting the stage for the moment of actual tension waiting to be resolved. And so if we've considered a faithless departure, a faithless family, just moving along the, the path of least resistance, all of this is now moving towards the opposite of that faithlessness to faithfulness. Let's now consider a faithful commitment. In verses 6 and 7, we find out that the famine is over. And the narrator gives us a subtle hint at the theology at work in the background of this book. It's not just that it started raining and that people weren't starving anymore, but that Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. The Lord had come and he had given them food. God had returned to his people, to provide for them. But again, if only the material, if only the path of least resistance is at work here, then that is what is prompting Naomi's move. She only now wants to move back to Bethlehem because she's heard there's food there. But then we've got some amazing dialogue here, beginning in verse eight. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. These words, or this word for kindly or with kindness, may the Lord deal kindly with you, is the Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant love, covenant faithfulness. May the Lord deal with you with covenant love and covenant faithfulness. May God deal with you with the covenant faithfulness that he has shown to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and Moses and Joshua, which is just a really strange thing to say to Moabite women, isn't it? But it seems that they perhaps, probably, if not likely, have come to at least some knowledge of the God of Israel. But Naomi wants them to move on, to find some level of security back at home with their Moabite families, with the Moabite people, returning to the land of Judah, to Bethlehem, as Moabite women would now, with, with now zero marital, with now zero male connections, likely will not go well for them. They're likely not to find husbands. They are likely to, if they return with her to Bethlehem, to find themselves in a place of even greater social marginalization. Naomi will be lonely and destitute. Orpah and Ruth, you do not have to join me now in my destitution, she is seemingly saying. But in tears, her daughters-in-law say, no, we will go with you. They do love and care for Naomi. But Naomi says in verse 11, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? What she is referring to here is the Jewish practice of leveret marriage, which will become a bigger theme throughout the rest of this book. But this system is that so if a woman's husband dies, her husband's brother will then marry her brother's widow. And if there is no brother, then it, then it would move out into wider concentric circles of cousins and cousins' cousins and uncles and nephews who would be obligated to marry the widow. Now, to us, this sounds backward and horrible and terrible, but in these days... This is the mosaic system of actually caring for the vulnerable, of providing marriage, of providing children, of providing a familial and social structure, of safety nets for widows, of young children. And so, in verse twelve, when she says, "Turn back, my daughters; go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, if I have, I, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown?" What she's saying is that. There is very little family back home. She's saying, look, even if I were pregnant right now, which I am not, it, it would be 18 or 19 years from now before your dead husbands, who then had brothers, who could marry you. It's going to be a long time, and it's likely not ever going to happen, that you will have husbands for yourself. Go home to Moab where you can find a husband. But then at the end of verse 13, revealing the way that she feels about God and about this entire situation, which we'll dig more deeply into in the third point, she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Because she thinks that God is so against her that to attach themselves to Naomi is to attach themselves to a life of sadness, a life of loss, a life of doom. Go home. Get away from me. Be happy. Make something of your life. Separate yourself from me. Separate yourself from loss and doom. And Orpah is totally convinced by this. Why? Because Naomi's logic is seemingly airtight. There is not one reason at all why she she should stay with Naomi and why she should go back with her to Bethlehem. Maybe she is cursed. Maybe, Orpah is thinking, if I do go back with her to Bethlehem, her people will hate me if I go with her. And so she kisses Naomi and she goes home. She's back to Moab. But into verse 14, Ruth clung to her. This is the same word in Genesis 2.24, where we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, shall cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Ruth is not Naomi's husband. This is not a one-flesh marriage relationship. Ruth's husband has died, and Naomi's husband has died. But now Ruth is committing herself covenantally. She is clinging to the good of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi pleads with her to actually consider herself, consider her own life, what she is leaving behind and what she is committing to if she were to come with her. Verse 15, she said, See, your sister in law has gone back to her people and to her gods. She's gone back to Moab. Return after her. Return after your sister in law. But Ruth is adamant. In a famous response, which, let's be honest, many of you actually thought Ruth said this to Boaz in a moment of like romantic love. But Ruth says to her mother in law, She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will launch. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. None of this makes any sense. Naomi does seem to be cursed. For Ruth to go with her to Bethlehem would be putting herself in danger. And on top of that, this kind of like switching gods thing was almost unheard of in these days. Your gods were based on where you were from. Your god of your region. Ruth is a Moabite woman, which means her god is Chemosh, not Yahweh, the God of Israel, that regional God of that place. But it is actually Naomi's God that is driving this kind of commitment from Ruth, not necessarily her commitment to Naomi, the person. How do we know this? If she had stopped in verse 16, this would have likely just been Ruth committing to care for a sad and angry older lady. But instead, in verse 17, she goes on Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Her commitment is going to outlast Naomi's life. It would be completely understandable for her to care to Naomi, and then when Naomi has died, some time in the future, for, the, for her then, to move back to Moab. And the Hebrew actually doesn't even indicate the future commitment that our English translators have chosen here. She literally just says, "Your God, my God. Your people, my people." Something has already happened to Ruth. So we could perhaps better understand what she's saying, "cause your God is my God, and because your people are my people, I'm going with you." So when Naomi questions herself or questions Ruth again, Sinclair Ferguson paraphrases Ruth's response says, "Listen, I've been converted. Stop urging me to go back. Did you hear me? I've been converted." Now maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself needing Ruth as a model of faith. To not give yourself to the God of the Bible actually seems easier. It seems better. A path of lesser resistance. After all, Orpah may have gone back home. She may have found a good husband. She may have had many children. Orpah, many years from here, may have died peacefully in her sleep. We don't know. Maybe just before she died, her last thoughts were, man, I'm so glad I didn't go back to Bethlehem. Conversion to this God of covenant faithfulness is not always the easiest road. Jesus himself says that it is the narrow road, the difficult road, that before committing to follow him, you should count the cost, count the things that you will lose, and that to find your life, you must first lose it. But he also says that what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Orpah may have had a full life of material wealth and happiness, maybe, but she would have lost out on God, the source of fullest and anchoring contentment and joy in her life, regardless of varying levels of material security. And so Jesus' invitation to me, to you, to all of us, to Ruth, is this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is not the path of least resistance, but it is the path to life. Would you consider the faith of Ruth, her commitment to the God of Israel, and say, yes, today would be the day of decisive Change for me as well. I have been converted. Stop trying to talk me out of it. Stop trying to send me home. I have been converted. I belong to the God of Israel. Of leaving behind old gods and turning to Christ who will love you and will save you. But back to Ruth. Despite one of the most beautiful and poetic expressions of faith and of love and of kindness ever spoken or written, how does Naomi respond to her? Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Her response is seemingly, all right, I guess I can't do anything about her. I guess she's just going to be like that puppy who won't stop following you home. Well, let's go then. Which then gets us to our final scene of chapter one. This last bit has actually been the music swelling climax of the chapter. This beautiful moment of conversion and of faith that kind of just ends with a record scratch at this response of Naomi. It dies with a whimper here as Naomi and Ruth embark embark back to Bethlehem in a desperate return. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now everything here is plural. The two of them, they came, they came. The town was stirred because of them, of Naomi and Ruth. And then the women said, is this Naomi? Ruth is, like, invisible. It's been at least 10 years, so undoubtedly Naomi's life in the absence of the three men in her life makes the women really curious. There are many questions I'm sure they have. What happened? Where have you been? But none of the questions are, and who's this? And Naomi doesn't make any effort to explain either. She doesn't say right away, here, meet my unbelievable daughter-in-law. She is a Moabite, but get this, she has left her gods, and she has aligned herself with the God of Israel, with our God, with our people. Welcome her. None of that. All she says is, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And we haven't talked about Naomi's name yet, but Naomi means pleasant or sweet, so, when the ladies say, Is this Naomi? they're literally saying, Is, is this sweetness? Is this sweetie pie? Come back to Bethlehem. <laughs> Naomi says, Don't call me sweetie pie. Call me bitter. This isn't the first time that we've seen this word mara or bitter in the Bible. In Exodus 15, immediately after God delivers the people through the Red Sea, they come to a water source and they call it mara. They call this water source mara because the water there was bitter. Naomi is saying, that's me. That's Mara. I am bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The first word that she uses of God is the Almighty. She doesn't use the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that we often see with like the small uppercase caps in our English Bibles. Though she will say that. She will call him that later. Or even she doesn't use the word Elohim for God. She just uses the title. Shaddai, almost detaching herself from, or in him, from his character. He's almighty. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly, bitterly with me. He's almighty, but I'm not sure that he's good. And even when she does use the covenant name Yahweh, which we again can see in our English Bibles in verse 21 as Lord with all caps, she's almost accusing him, right? In verse 21 I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord, when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Not one concession to the people of Bethlehem. Not one concession that while all of these people remained in the land throughout the famine, that her family had left. Not one bit of remorse. Not one apology to the people or to God. Just, I believe he's powerful, but I don't know if he's good. Just look at what he's done to me. He has dealt bitterly with me. Do not call me sweetie pie. And no doubt what has happened to Naomi has been terrible. There has been so much death. There has been so much loss, so much anxiety, so much confusion, and now so much vulnerability in her life. But all of it has turned her even further in on herself. Naomi is not the only widow standing here, is she? Ruth has lost everything in her life too. But she has done so without anger, without accusation against God. Because does God need to be accused? Is God evil? Is he just the Almighty, but not the God of love? Here's a question Would Naomi ever have returned to Bethlehem if things had gone the way that she would have hoped them to go in Moab? Who can say? And is she actually empty? I left full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Is she empty? No. Ruth is standing right there. The most loyal, the most faithful, the most meaningful person that Naomi could have ever hoped for. The most faithful person that she could have ever prayed for is standing right there. So when she says that God has taken everything from me, I have nothing. Ruth must have just like pursed her lips. Is it her God, my God? Her people, my people. God is showing his hesed, his covenant faithfulness to Naomi by giving her Ruth, but she is blind to it all. Ruth is invisible. She might not even. She might as well not even be there. Now, chapter one is in many ways similar to the book of Job. Why does God allow suffering? And both of these books, Job and Ruth, ultimately don't give a definitive and clear answer to that question. Why does God allow suffering? When many of you have gone through times of intense and excruciating death and loss and anxiety and confusion and perhaps even vulnerability, I or any of the rest of us should never answer, here is exactly why God is doing this or allowing that. But this is God's answer to Job that I am God, and you are not. Or to paraphrase John, paraphrase John Piper, there are about 70 billion things happening, happening at any moment in the universe, and you're aware of like three of them. And so, trust me, even if the good that I am working doesn't immediately affect you, even if the good that I am working might even come generations later beyond you, God is telling his people, you can trust my character, you can trust My wisdom, the story of Ruth is showing us the same thing in God's ordinary providence. That if God is only a God of almighty power, then he is not a God to be worshiped or loved, only a God to be feared, to be placated. And if we only stop in Ruth 1, then maybe that's the case, though we have already begun to see God providing. Maybe not the things that we want, but the things that we need, which is what he is doing here for Mara to once again make her Naomi. But it will take time. The story of her returning to Sweetie Pie takes time in this book. It takes time for it to be clear that this story actually is a comedy, that it has a good ending. And sometimes, oftentimes, these stories in the Bible and these stories in our life needs time beyond our lives. In fact, the story will not ultimately show itself to be a comedy until the Lord returns, beyond our lives and beyond our suffering. Now many of you will know the story of Joni Eareckson Tata, who at 17 years old became a quadriplegic after a diving accident into a shallow pool. And for the first many years after her accident, she dealt with and struggled through searing anger against God, accusation, against the God who would have allowed this to happen in her life. But after 50 years in a wheelchair, she said this. She said, I sure hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven, and then in my new and perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands, and I'll say, Thank you, Jesus." And he will know I mean, I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me for the, from the fellowship that we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I descri- discovered you to be. It never would have happened Had you not given me that bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair? Then she says, the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin. And all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the greatest fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we have ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus will really wipe away our tears. I find it so poignant that finally, at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. (laughs) Naomi did not deserve the faithful kindness of God. The question of Ruth 1 is not, why does God allow bad things to happen to faithful people? But why does God provide good things to faithless people? What a good God to show his faithfulness to Naomi by giving her Ruth. And if you keep reading in Ruth, which I hope you might do this week, what a good God to show his faithfulness to Israel by giving the entire nation this Moabite woman, Ruth. But Ruth 1 ends reminding us of how unlikely all of this is. Verse 22, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Like, when you read that verse, you're like, yes, we understand that a Moabite is someone from the country of Moab. You're being a little repetitive here, Mr. Narrator. But the narrator does not want us to forget who Ruth is, where this story has come from, and where this story is going. And where it is going should not make any sense, but we are still here in chapter 1 setting the stage, not just for the three chapters to come, but for the entire story of redemption that is brought to us in Jesus, the story of cosmic redemption, of the Lord Jesus forming for himself a people of every tribe and of every language, living finally in his kingdom, where spiritual and material blessing finally overlap, where there will one day be no hunger, no suffering, no more crying, no more loss, only fullness, only Christ. And here's the hint in that last sentence of chapter one. And they came to Bethlehem. They came to to the house of bread, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Aslan is on the move. He is great and greatly to be praised. He is good and greatly to be loved. He is wise and greatly to be trusted. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you. That you are not only the Almighty, While this is true, you are a God of great power and creative might, but yet you are a God of covenant faithfulness. You are a God of love. You are a God of provision, often not providing what we want, but providing what we need. Help us to trust that. Help us to trust you as a good father, not just a distant God or a powerful king, but as a loving and caring father. We're so thankful for this Book of Ruth, we are so thankful for the godly and faithful uh, model of courage and of faith that you have given us in your servant Ruth. And We pray that we, as we are looking to her, we might look beyond her to the work and the person of Jesus who has lived and died in faithfulness for our faithlessness. And we pray for all these things that we might know and trust him more. In his name, amen.